0: Hey, what's up, everybody?
1: Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 202. Today, we are going to be talking about a case that has just blown both of us away. Researching it over the last week has been really interesting, and I'm surprised that this case doesn't have as much coverage. Yeah, I
2: and haven't even heard of this case.
1: Yeah, I feel a lot of people haven't heard of this case, which is surprising.
0: And it's probably one of the craziest out there. I mean, really, this, this case is two cases inside of one family uh, the stainer family yep and just trying to wrap your head around what this family experienced Mm -hmm. uh over the past you know 30 years or so is truly mind-blowing and just
1: it's actually like last 50 years yeah yeah thank you
0: yeah yeah. it's like 50 years of history uh, within this family has been dealing with being in the spotlight really and having the media follow them around everywhere because of what happened to Steven Stainer and then what happens later on to Steven's brother, Carrie Stainer, Mm -hmm. who ended up being called the Yosemite Killer. Mm -hmm. So just from that, kidnapping and a killer all happens in the same family. So it's an absolutely crazy story and just there's a lot to unpack here. There is. So we're gonna go in and just jump right into things. Before we do though, I just wanted to remind everybody we are very, very close to launching the new merch store. It's out there right now, mileheartmerch.com. You can put your email in there to be notified when the store actually goes live.
1: Very, very close is a little generous. I don't know.
0: A couple weeks. <laughs> we went from a couple months to now, hopefully, a couple weeks, three, four weeks, maybe a month at most. Yeah. But we are working very hard. We've already got collections put together, um, which I think you, you will definitely like. Yeah. I know we love them. We're excited to I'm unveil so excited. everything to you guys.
1: I'm but, most excited just to have them on myself. I'm yeah, wearing old I know, merch right now, I know. which is some of my favorite merch we've ever made. But
0: yeah, I do. I love that hoodie. Yeah. It's a too. really good one. But yeah, it'll be at malharmerch.com As always, check out HighloveWellness.com for all of your CBD needs. But this episode of the Mile Heart Podcast is brought to you by Curology Express VPN Favor and Shopify. So we're gonna go ahead and start with the case of Steven Stainer, because that this is this happens before the whole case with Carrie Stainer. But let's start with just the background on Stephen and his family.
1: So Stephen Gregory Stainer was born April 18th, 1965 in Merced, California to his parents, Delbert and Kay. Stephen had two younger sisters as well, Jody and Corey, and an older sister named Cindy and an older brother named Carrie, as we have already mentioned. Stephen spent his early childhood on the family's ranch home near Snelling, California, and it's a 20 acre property, very peaceful and a happy almond grove with farm animals and lots of room to run around. The Stainers were a Mormon family, and the kids actually really liked going to church. Their family drove 20 miles to the nearest Mormon church twice a week. Growing up, Stephen always loved to hang out with his father, Delbert, or Del for short, and we will be referring to him as Del. So whenever Del went out to work on the ranch, Stephen would tag along, and he loved to curl up on the couch with his dad and follow him around like a little puppy dog. The two of them loved to go on hunting trips and fishing trips, and Stephen was kind of like Del's little shadow. Their family also had a collie named Daisy that Stephen absolutely adored. He would play fetch with her. They'd run around their orchard together. And Stephen was a very friendly kid who got along well with others. Stephen always was super eager to help out his family, especially around the farm. He was a little shy, but he was very, very polite. But in 1971, the family had to sell their ranch and move to Merced, a small city in California's Central Valley. Merced is right near Yosemite National Park, and it's nicknamed the Gateway to Yosemite.
0: Yeah, because basically when you go through Merced, you go east through the town to head up towards Yosemite National Park. And it's about an hour, 45 to two hour drive from there. But I mean, it's it's kind of like here in Colorado where we have Esses Park is kind of the gateway to uh, Rocky Mountain National Park. So Merced's the gateway to Yosemite.
3: Yeah, small town vibes I was getting. And it's known for agriculture and almonds and peaches. Hmm. But it's a tiny little place. Uh, I think the population's only like a little over 250,000. Yeah, yeah. Pretty small. So obviously, moving is always
1: hard for kids, but this move especially was a pretty tough change for Steven. He did not like having to leave his friends and having less space to play in. Plus, their dog, Daisy, also wasn't adjusting well to the move. Before, she had a whole ranch to run around, and now she only had a small little backyard to walk through. Kay decided it was best to give the dog to a family who had a larger property. And obviously, Steven was not happy with that. I mean, he loved no, the dog. No, his dog. Yeah.
0: That sucks. Stephen was already so used to having a giant backyard that he'd actually get into trouble a lot for accidentally cutting through neighbors' yards and gardens, and the whole thing was just all too much for Stephen. He cried a lot at school, and he got into fights with his classmates pretty frequently. It was a tough fall that year, but by spring, things started to get better. Stephen was making more friends in class and in the neighborhood. By the time the fall of 1972 rolled around, he had plenty of friends again. Stephen was seven years old and in second grade at the time, and every morning, the four oldest kids walked to school together. Carrie, the oldest brother, was a sixth grader at the time. He hated walking his little siblings to school every day, but his mom insisted that he watch over his younger siblings. Stephen walked home from school alone, though. His older siblings got out of school later than he did, and by November of 1972, he had started getting into trouble for walking to friends' houses after school instead of going straight home. On December 1st of that year, Dell punished Stephen for going over to a friend's house after school without permission. Stephen's parents had already warned him multiple times not to do that, and this time they hoped Stephen would listen. Two days later, on December 3rd, Steven's mom Kay took him to a classmate's birthday party. Christmas was coming up in a few weeks, so Santa Claus made an appearance at the party, and the kids had an absolute blast. Stephen was so excited that Santa was going to be visiting the house soon. He told his dad that he hoped there'd be a G.I. Joe set under the tree that year. All that excitement made it hard for Stephen to sleep that night. And nobody knew that it would be one of the last nights Stephen would spend at home for many, many years.
1: So on December 4th, 1972, Stephen spent a normal day at Charles Wright Elementary School. It was cold and sleeting outside. His mom spent the day running errands and watching Corey, who was only four years old at the time. Kay planned on picking up Stephen from school at 2 p.m., Meanwhile, two men who worked near Yosemite National Park were making their way over to Merced. And one of these men was named Kenneth Parnell, and he was a convicted child molester. The other was Irvin Murphy, and he was, I guess, one of his cronies.
0: I think he was just kind of a man that he uh, just kind of took advantage of, I guess. Yeah. They they described him as being like Mm slow-witted, like maybe just have some mental disabilities perhaps. Yeah.
1: And he kind of just followed along with everything Mm -hmm. that Kenneth said to do. That day, Kenneth had offered to drive Irvin back to Merced, and the two of them hopped into Kenneth's white Buick and headed for the mall. While Irvin went shopping for Christmas presents, Kenneth bought a stack of gospel tracts. He told Irvin that he was actually studying to become a minister, and that day the two of them were going to go out and hand out gospel tracts to kids on their way home from school. According to Kenneth, those kids came from an underprivileged area and were probably abused and neglected at home. He told Irvin that he wanted to take one of those kids home and raise them as his own. So at 2 p.m. that day, Kay was still held up at an auto parts store getting supplies for Dell. She headed out and started driving towards the elementary school. She hoped Stephen would still be there waiting for her. After all, the weather was pretty crappy and she didn't want him to freeze walking home. But Stephen did end up walking home alone that day. He didn't know that Kay was on her way, so he started trekking through the sleet. It was a pretty normal walk until he reached the gas station, and a stranger suddenly came up to him, and it was Irvin Murphy.
0: Irvin was handing out gospel pamphlets to young boys in the area. And that afternoon, he saw Stephen walking home and asked him if his mom wanted to donate anything to the local church. Stephen was naturally a very kind and helpful boy, he told the man that his mom probably would have items to donate, and he could take him to the family house. Irvin told Steven that he could drive him to his house instead of walking, and that's when he pointed to a white Buick sedan with another man behind the wheel. At first, Steven said that he could just walk the men over to his house, but Irvin kept saying that they'd drive him instead, and sadly, Steven agreed to get into the car. Kay got to the school around 2.10 p.m., and there were still a few groups of kids waiting for their parents, but Kay looked through all of them, and she couldn't find her son. She figured that Stephen must have started walking home. She kept her eyes peeled as she drove down his usual route, but she never spotted Stephen. Kay got home around 2.20 p.m. and asked Dell if he had seen their son. Dell said he hadn't. They weren't too concerned at first, as Stephen did have a bad habit of walking to friends' houses without asking for permission first. Meanwhile, Kenneth was driving Stephen away from his house, and Stephen was starting to get confused. He told the two men that they weren't driving the right way to his house. But Kenneth told them he wouldn't be going home.
1: Instead, Kenneth took Stephen to his cabin in Kathy's Valley, California. Stephen was obviously very confused by this. And at one point, Kenneth pulled over and stopped at a payphone. Stephen asked to go back to his house, but Kenneth told Stephen that that wasn't going to happen. He said that he had just talked to his parents over the phone and that they said they didn't want him anymore. Now, Kenneth was going to be his dad instead. Meanwhile, the Stainers are actually at home, wondering where Stephen was. Eventually, 3 p.m. rolled around, and Kay went to pick up the rest of the kids from school. But none of them had seen Stephen. By that point, Kay was obviously starting to get really nervous, and she figured that Stephen maybe was at a friend's house, so she started calling up some other parents. But none of them knew where Stephen was. He hadn't come over for any unannounced playdates. So the family called up the police and reported Stephen missing, at 5.15 p.m. And then the day came to a close, and Stephen was still nowhere to be found. And as the days went on, the family passed out flyers while the police tried to track down seven-year-old Stephen. They even organized some searches canvassing the whole city, but he didn't turn up. It was like he'd disappeared out of thin air. It became pretty clear pretty quickly that Stephen must have been kidnapped, but there were no witnesses to that kidnapping or evidence that pointed to a suspect. So the trail went cold quickly.
0: I'm really surprised that there was no witnesses to this. I mm-hmm. know. Like this was in just the public in broad daylight.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and there could have been witnesses. It's just right. how well were they reporting that he was missing? That's true. General and it wasn't public.
0: like Stephen was like screaming and kicking yeah. on his way mm-hmm. into the car. So it could have looked like it was right. somebody that he knew. I mean, Absolutely. that's what they were obviously trying to do is make it look as, as normal, normal as possible by having Irvin you know, kind of ask him for a ride if you want to ride and stuff, so.
3: What I think is crazy is how little the percentages of kidnappings are done by complete strangers. Like, I feel like people think of, like, a classic kidnapping is something like this. But in Mm -hmm. reality, that's, like, so much more rare than it being either a parent, that's, like, the most common, I'm pretty sure, or some type of family member or even just, like, an acquaintance that, you know, not, like, a complete stranger
0: that knows the the child. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. It's the rarest form of kidnapping um, is non-family abduction. So, I mean, that's technically either taken by someone they know but not related to them or just a full-on stranger. And yet yeah, it only makes up 1% of missing children cases. This is according to uh, National Center for Missing Exploited Children. That's
0: wild. 1%. 1%. I did not I mean, it that. makes sense. I mean, a lot of the yeah. Amber Alerts you see and stuff are yeah. usually yep. because of some custody agreement, mm-hmm. you know, they're violating it and they, or they just showed up and took the kid without. Or it's without. someone
1: that the child trusts. and, it's, yeah, and yeah, it ends up being a
0: parent to right or them. family member that takes the child.
3: Or a lot of the time I feel like it's someone's, uh, like someone's parent's friend. Like, yeah. oh, mm-hmm. my dad's friend, Timmy, is yeah. always around me. And right. like gets to know the family and like.
1: Can kind of get the inside scoop yeah. and figure out how best to go about kidnapping Well, it, them.
0: it makes sense because to pull off a kidnapping and get away with it you really need to be able to you know earn the trust of that child yeah. quickly mm-hmm. i mean unless the easier. child's really really young where obviously they're not going to do anything like if it's a baby or, yeah. or a toddler mm-hmm. or something but like a 7 year old child you know yeah. nowadays i'm i'm wondering i'm wondering if like non family abductions have gone down over time like if now in 2022 is it right. At a much lower rate compared to the
1: 1970s. Yeah, that's a good point because I was just thinking, you know, in Steven's case, he was taught to be polite to strangers. He was very yeah, it was friendly. A different time. Yeah. yeah, it's a different time. And I'm sure his parents didn't really teach him as much about stranger danger
0: as right. kids nowadays. No. Time. Well, have you ever talked to your parents about like growing up in the, the 70s and 80s? And, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. and I know I've talked to my dad about uh, this this exact topic before and he was like, "Oh yeah, we used to just, you know, mm, ride. Sure. We would ride, walk, or ride my bike miles to school, oh, yeah. to the yeah. store, and
1: which obviously people still do, but way less. Yeah,
0: and and you know, there was strangers everywhere, but it was like, yeah, it was never something that I was concerned with. There was never this fear mm-hmm. of being abducted, or you know, just wasn't a known thing. And I think a lot of it has to do with communication and the the power. I mean, the internet changed everything. Yeah, in the t- mm-hmm. in, you know, two thousand hit and." now information is accessed instantly as opposed to in the the 70s, you wouldn't even hear about this until the local newspaper picked it up. And that was like where people got their news or the, you know. Everything was so delayed. Yeah, it was super delayed.
1: And I also think in Stephen's case, it was different. He felt a sense of trust with them because they were men of the church, you know, and he grew up from a religious family as well. And he was like, you know, they kind of connected on that. And they offered him a ride in the rain. I mean, I can totally see how you would end up trusting someone trusting the wrong person. Well, I
0: mean, at church, they tell you that everybody in the church is a part of your family, right? They're an extension of your family. That's concerning. your biological family. Yeah, so it, it is concerning and it's led to a lot of, <laughs> a, a lot of abuse mm-hmm. within, within the church Absolutely. Um, because of that very reason that young kids trust these people that are mm-hmm. in the church to treat them the way God would, you know, want you to yeah. be treated. And that's not always the case. They, a lot of, Very bad people use that to their advantage to, Mm -hmm. you know, earn the trust of young children. And that's how they were able to do this, you know,
1: without causing a real big scene. They were able to gain his trust. He gets in the car and boom, he's gone like
3: that. Speaking of gaining trust, though, and to bounce off of your thing about technology changing things, it also changed things because now predators can just go become friends with someone on Facebook, whether that's either catfishing them or... Just yeah. being a nice friend on Facebook and kids don't mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. And then they, re- you know, they make this relationship with them and then they're going to be like, oh, I have a really cool thing to show you. Meet yep. me at such and such park after your school on Tuesday. Thing, yeah. And scariest then boom. Thing.
1: I know. It reminds me of Alicia Navarro. Yeah. And the discord and yeah. gaming websites, all that stuff. It's scary out there these days online.
0: Well, it's so easy to just be anonymous i mean it's like the, that's the thing it's a double-edged sword like the internet brought all these good things mm-hmm. with it but then it brought the ability for people to remain anonymous yeah and be whoever you want to be you can okay. be whatever you want to be on the internet even in you know if in real life that's not you at all so the police and steven's family are still looking everywhere for him you know they're putting up flyers or trying to gather any sort of clues as to where he went and while all that's going on, Stephen is being held captive in a cabin in Kathy's Valley. And Stephen kept asking Kenneth to take him home, but Kenneth said he wasn't going to do that. He said Stephen's parents didn't have the money to raise him, so they made him his legal guardian. So the brainwashing started almost right away. And sadly, Kenneth started sexually abusing Stephen soon after the kidnapping. And for weeks, he kept Stephen in a room inside the cabin and he fed him cough syrup to keep him sedated. He was, I mean, clearly isolating him and trying to mess with his mental state with, you know, Mm -hmm. giving him that cough syrup in order to hopefully try to break his connection from the real world and his real identity. The cabin was coincidentally only a few hundred feet from Stephen's grandma's house. How crazy is that? But Stephen didn't know where his grandmother lived and his grandmother never saw any signs that Stephen was living there. Kenneth told Stephen that his new name was Dennis Gregory Parnell, and he kept Stephen's middle name, but he dyed Stephen's hair and told him to start calling him Dad. Stephen spent days, then weeks, then months as Kenneth's captive. Kenneth moved Stephen around California a lot to try and stay ahead of the police. At one point, Kenneth moved him from Kathy's Valley to Santa Rosa, and they drifted from one cheap motel to the next. One day in 1973, Kenneth brought home a woman named Barbara Mathias. He had apparently hired her to babysit Stephen while he was out. Barbara lived in a house with them for 18 months and she also participated in Kenneth's sexual abuse. Stephen had to call Barbara mom. Once, Kenneth actually got Barbara to help him try and kidnap another young boy in Santa Rosa. But luckily, that attempt failed. Stephen knew that he couldn't disobey Kenneth. All it took was one look and Stephen would be terrified of what he'd do to him. And that fear kept Stephen under Kenneth's control.
1: On the other hand, Kenneth let Stephen smoke and drink, and it seemed like he gave him a lot of freedom in some senses. He gave Stephen a dog named Queenie, and obviously Kenneth is giving Stephen those freedoms to keep him from talking about the sexual abuse. Meanwhile, the Stainer family is absolutely devastated by Stephen's disappearance, and they never stopped looking for him. I mean, they had brought these flyers apparently after he was no longer attending the schools because he was moved around a lot, but still he had attended the school as Dennis and no one recognized him even though he went there.
0: From the photos, you would think that you would be able to draw a connection there. I mean, he did have a different hair color. But that's it. It's just crazy too that like back in the, the 70s, you could just like pop your kid around from school to school with a fake name. Mm -hmm. And as long as you brought like a photocopy of his records, they would just like (laughs) enroll him in school and be like, all right, I guess guess that's Dennis Parnell.
1: I think that's what's so shocking about this case is that he was enrolled in different schools and no one ever figured out he was kind of hiding in plain sight.
0: No one had a clue. Teachers, friends of his that he had never had any clue that he was anyone other than Dennis Parnell. It's
1: interesting that Kenneth would even take that risk to enroll him in schools versus just keeping him at home. Right, you right. You know, I mean, in so many kidnapping cases, they just end up uneducated, unfortunately, which I guess it's good that he did go to school and he was able to have some social life and education outside of which, all the abuse. But yeah, it's which, just shocking. It's surprising.
2: Well,
0: I think it goes back to what was Kenneth's motive for the kidnapping? Yeah. Was it just the, the sexual part of it? I think that was part, but... Obviously, he wanted a son, too. Yeah. And he wanted to kind of create this normalcy. It's playing
3: house.
1: Family. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. His mother, Kay, was just devastated. I mean, every moment of every day, she was worried about him and wondering where he was. And she wouldn't even leave the house unattended in case, you know, Stephen called up the house and she didn't want to miss the call. And Delbert became very distant and withdrawn. The continued grief over losing their son was just too overwhelming. Carrie, Stephen's older brother, was very affected by his brother's kidnapping. He'd felt like he'd been emotionally neglected by his parents, who were pretty consumed with their own grief and looking for Stephen. And it was clearly taking a toll on him. He started wearing hats all the time because he was compulsively pulling his hair out. Carrie had always been pretty introverted and liked to keep to himself, but he struggled to adjust to his family's new normal. In high school, he sort of became known as the kidnap boy's brother. Carry focused a lot of his time drawing cartoons. He seemed like a pretty normal kid, and his classmates voted him most creative. But Carrie had a very dark secret. He'd been having violent, intrusive thoughts about hurting women since he was only six or seven years old. And now those thoughts were bothering him more and more. At one point in high school, he exposed himself to one of his little sister's friends, and his behavior was getting very creepy and very bizarre.
0: Meanwhile, back in Santa Rosa, Stephen had no idea his family was still looking for him. He thought about them a lot, and he wondered why they hadn't found him yet. That only reinforced the belief that they didn't want him, as Kenneth had told him. Eventually, Kenneth moved Stephen to a trailer home in a small rural town named Kamshi. It was the kind of town where kids ran around without a lot of adult supervision, but they were always home before dark. They were able to be pretty independent there. Stephen went to school as Dennis Parnell, and his classmates and teachers thought he was polite, but he was pretty quiet and shy. They believed Kenneth was his dad, and they didn't have much of a reason to be suspicious. Plus, schools weren't as strict about records back then, and Kenneth was able to enroll Stephen in school using a fake birth certificate using Stephen's real birthday. Dennis still made friends and played on the high school football team in Mendocino. He even started dating a girl named Lori. Lori. A lot of his classmates noticed that he had a lot more freedom than the other kids. Stephen could already smoke and drink and even take drugs without Kenneth doing anything about it. At the time, he was only 14 years old. They didn't know much about his dad, and all they knew was that Dennis' mother wasn't really around. It seemed like Dennis didn't really want to talk about it, though. One day, one of Stephen's friends asked why he couldn't just call up his mom, and Stephen said that his mom didn't know he existed and that he couldn't call her up. There was another instance where Stephen seemed really down about something. He and his friends were walking home from school and drinking beers when Stephen suddenly started crying. And he told his friends that he wanted to go home.
1: His friends were confused. And one of them pointed out that his house was only a short walk away. But Stephen cried and told them that he wanted to go back to his real home. And they didn't know what he meant by that at that time. There were some times where Kenneth was out and Stephen could have escaped. But the reality of the situation was not that simple. Stephen was just a kid when he was kidnapped. He had no idea where he really lived. He couldn't even be sure of his real name. One time, Stephen actually did leave Kenneth's house and tried to escape, but he got scared and realized he didn't know what to do, so he actually went back. Stephen didn't know where to go or how to get there. He had spent years being psychologically manipulated and conditioned by his abuser. He was so young when he had been kidnapped that even though he was a teenager now, He was still just a kid. It was probably hard to even imagine a life outside of Kenneth's captivity. And at this point, Kenneth knew that Stephen had gotten close with his friends and his teachers, so there were people in his life that he could trust, and that really threatened Kenneth's control over Stephen. So when Stephen turned 14, Kenneth moved him again, and this time they went to a quiet coastal town called Point Arena. Stephen went from living in a decently normal trailer home to a busted shack in the middle of nowhere. And the sexual abuse continued until Stephen got too old for Kenneth. Now, Kenneth wanted to kidnap another younger victim. There were multiple instances where Kenneth tried to get Stephen to help him kidnap another boy. And every time, Stephen said no. Whenever he got the chance, Stephen would sabotage Kenneth's kidnapping attempts. Which really shows the type of person that Stephen yeah, was. Yeah, even
0: in that, that situation, that is dangerous for him. He was yeah. still, you know, trying to help save other kids as much as he could.
1: Yeah, he didn't want anyone else to suffer from the abuse that he had been going through for years at this point. But Kenneth was insistent that he was going to look for another victim. And in the beginning of February 1980, he started following a young boy home from elementary school named Timothy White.
0: So Timmy was a five-year-old who lived in Ukiah, California. And every day he would walk home from school. During the first half of his walk, he walked with a friend. But for the second half, he walked by himself. On February 14th, 1980, Valentine's Day, Kenneth drove down to Ukiah with one of Stephen's friends, 15-year-old Randall Poorman. Randall agreed to help him kidnap a boy after Kenneth paid him $50 and gave him some booze and drugs. Kenneth spotted five-year-old Timmy walking home from school that day and he pointed him out and told Randall to lure him into the car. So Randall came up to Timmy and pretended to have car problems that he needed help with. Timmy sensed that he was in danger, so he immediately took off running, but Randall chased after him, grabbed him, and then threw him into the back of Kenneth's car. Stephen was shocked and horrified when he came home and saw Timmy inside the house. Timmy cried and kept repeating that he wanted to go home, but Kenneth told him the same story he gave Stephen, that his parents didn't want him anymore. And that's when Stephen started to realize that Kenneth never adopted him. He'd stolen him, just like he'd stolen Timmy, Stephen knew Timmy had parents who loved and missed him back home, and he realized that he also had a family that missed him too. Stephen knew at this point that he had to do something. He didn't want Timmy to go through the hell that Kenneth put him through as a child, so Stephen made sure to keep Timmy safe from his abuse. He came home from school early every day so that Kenneth didn't have a chance to abuse Timmy. He also started forming an escape plan. He needed to keep Timmy safe from Kenneth, which meant getting him out of there. There are multiple initial escapes that Stephen planned. They need to leave when Kenneth was working his night shift security job, but these had to be called off when the weather was bad or Kenneth decided to call out of work. But Stephen was still determined to get Timmy out of there. That's why when he got the next chance to run, he took it and he didn't look back. Before we get into their escape from Kenneth's house, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back.
1: So that brings us to March 1st, 1980. Kenneth left the house for his night security job, and when the coast was clear, Stephen grabbed Timmy, and they ran out of the house. The two of them ran through the woods, trying to get towards civilization, and Stephen carried Timmy through the woods when he got too tired to walk. Eventually, they reached a road, and they were able to hitchhike 40 miles into Yukaya. Timmy wanted Stephen to take him back to his house in Yukaya, but neither of them knew how to get there, so they went to the police station instead. And at first, Stephen was just going to drop Timmy off at the police station and then head out. But when Timmy ran out of the police station's front door, Stephen caught the attention of another police officer. The officer brought the two of them inside and Stephen told them the truth. He had been missing for seven years. So the police interviewed Stephen and asked him about his real identity. And he told the officer, my name is Stephen Stainer. I'm 14 years of age. I don't know my true birth date. But I use April eighteenth, nineteen sixty-five. I know my first name is Steven. I'm pretty sure my last name is Stainer. And if I have a middle name, I don't know about it. So Timmy was taken back to his parents in Ukaya unharmed. Stephen was a hero. Thanks to his bravery, Timmy White was saved from a life of horrific abuse. And then late that night, Kay, Steven's mom, got a knock on the front door, and it was a police officer. And at first, she thought maybe the officer had come over to talk to her about Carrie. But the officer said, no, he actually had news about Stephen. Kay thought she was about to get some horrible news. She collapsed and Dell rushed into the room. They were both absolutely shocked, as you can imagine, when the police officer told them that Stephen was alive and at the police station in Ukiah. The media wanted to broadcast Stephen's return to Merced and Kay wanted to share their happiness with the world. So, she opened the family to the cameras.
0: Carrie was actually off on a camping trip in Yosemite that night. He found out Stephen had returned from the radio. On the way back to Merced, Stephen asked if his father was still alive. In 1970, Del had actually passed out in front of Stephen after he slipped a disc in his back. At the time, Stephen thought his dad had a heart attack, and he spent a lot of time worrying that he'd die. A few hundred people gathered outside the Stainer's house in Merced. News reporters were everywhere in the yard, on the streets, and even on their house roof. They captured the moment Stephen returned to his family. He held his dog Queenie and saw his parents in person for the first time, and they immediately ran up to him and hugged him for the first time in seven years. Their son was finally home. 25 years ago, the nation was shocked and overjoyed to hear that two missing children had been found alive, one was a five-year-old named Timmy White who had been missing for about two weeks. The other was Steven Stainer, a 14-year-old boy who had been gone for an incredible seven years. Stainer said he didn't try to contact his real family for seven years because Parnell had brainwashed him, making him think his parents didn't want him.
1: Imagine seeing that on the news at the time, how exciting that would be. And being Stephen behind all those cameras, never thinking you're going to see any of them again and...
0: It's yeah. just be such a all of a sudden moment. you're reunited with them. Yeah,
1: it's unbelievable.
0: I can't imagine as a parent though, like seeing your your son or daughter seven years later after you've missed oh all that God. time with them. Yeah, you know they left you when they were just a child, and then it's
1: mm-hmm. a good point. so much were, mixed emotion. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, it's just I would be happy that mm-hmm. my my child was was back of and course. alive and seemingly you know unharmed at at this point, but. Yeah. Just knowing that you missed out on seven years because they were with their kidnapper would just be, yeah, be hard to deal with. It'd make me very angry, that's for sure. Yeah,
1: so many emotions
0: towards the person whoever kidnapped them. So mm-hmm.
3: I feel like at first you'd be obviously in shock and like running on adrenaline. You'd be like so happy and just yeah. the fact that you're literally holding your kid. But I feel like mm-hmm. as time goes on, and the weeks pass, and you start thinking mm-hmm. about it more, then I feel like the anger of, of like,
0: mm-hmm. yeah.
3: And almost having to get to know your son again, yeah, in a whole different mm-hmm. way. You know what I mean? All these new challenges. Like, who is that are this coming kid up? right now that I yeah. haven't seen or been able to raise for seven years?
0: Totally. Yeah. Well, I mean, when they, when he left, when he disappeared, he was a child, and now he's coming home as a teenager, headed into, you know, being an adult. So, yeah, very different places in a child's life.
1: Yeah, it would be really hard to grieve all those years that you did lose. Mm-hmm. but still I guess have some joy that you'll be able to have him going forward but yeah talk about mixed emotions
0: so I mean it makes sense that the the media was just going crazy for the story i mean the, how often do you hear a story of of especially a non-family mm-hmm. kidnapping where they return yeah you know years later
1: I mean it's really just watching that clip just now it almost looks like a movie it's yeah. just and I'm, and no surprise, they did end up making a movie, which we will talk about as well. But yeah, it's a pretty crazy story.
0: Yeah. But all the cameras were pretty overwhelming for Stephen, as you can probably imagine. But the next day, he and his family spoke at a press conference outside the home. It was a miracle for the town of Merced. Kenneth was arrested the next day for the kidnappings, and Irvin and Randall were charged as accomplices in the kidnappings as well. Barbara Mathias, the babysitter, was not charged with anything. She later claimed that she had no idea Stephen had actually been kidnapped. That's disgusting. Yeah. What? Barbara's kids had also allegedly been sexually abused by Kenneth. According to Barbara, she allegedly reported those incidents to the police, but they didn't believe her. But the stainers were over the moon with happiness. After seven long years, their missing son had finally come home, and it was nothing short of a miracle. But life after Stephen returned wasn't always easy. It wasn't the neat fairy tale ending that the media made it out to be. Stephen briefly went to therapy, but he stopped shortly after he started. He didn't want to talk about the sexual abuse with a therapist, and his dad said that he didn't need therapy. Dell never trusted therapists, and he fought against Stephen seeing any of them.
1: Yeah, that was one thing that really oh, just irked me. Um, I know it's a different time, but he yeah. specifically said he hated psychiatrists even more than therapists, and he didn't want him getting any help.
0: Perhaps he had a bad experience yeah. for, with himself probably.
1: Perhaps, but also one of the sisters said that he just thought sharing your business around with other people isn't.
0: Yeah, like, and which is just kind of a an attitude I think people had in that time yeah, period was just kind of like, Ugh. you know, people would call therapists or psychiatrists shrinks, you know, I think yeah. isn't like a mm-hmm. shrink kind of.
3: Yeah, I would uh, say it's like kind of.
0: Not derogatory. I, I was
3: going to say for lack of a better term, derogatory. It kind of is. Yeah. yeah, it
0: was used back then a lot. Or a quack, you know, you could call call like... <laughs> really? <people.
3: laughs> yeah, no. you never heard people of... People would uh, say that. That yeah. makes sense why I'm a quack. You've yeah. never heard someone <laughs> refer no. to a therapist as a quack? No. Oh,
1: yeah. That was people a big do.
0: term that
3: no. was Especially back used. then. Well, I yeah. think a lot of the stigma was like, and how do you feel about that? Which yeah. is like... Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and think Stupid. about if you went and looked at the history of like therapy, yeah. I'm sure... Therapy back in the seventies is different than how it looks today and the methods yeah. oh, and, totally. and things have evolved and changed. So it could have been more yeah just like and just
1: the general population's understanding of therapy yeah. and how it can help. But yeah, mental what a health, disservice really. to Stephen. What a tragedy that he did not get proper therapy. Tragedy for seven their, years of this.
0: For the whole family. Yeah. Yeah. Truly. As we'll as but we'll find out. Mostly with for him. Mostly yeah. for him. Yeah.
3: I think a lot of people have the mentality of like well, you went through all this terrible shit, and somehow, according, you know, according to this case, you came out alive and, and okay in the sense yeah. of physically, you're okay, so why would we make you go to talk to some random shrink or right. quack and almost relive everything that you've already been through? Right. Like, you're fine. Now you're alive. You're home. Let's just keep it moving. Keep the healing process going. But meanwhile, people don't understand that PTSD yeah. doesn't just heal itself. No. It right. can get much worse. Mm -hmm. Don't deal with it.
0: Oftentimes, the would you agree with this that oftentimes the mental trauma is even worse than the physical trauma? Because I mean, like physical trauma, I would you're you, you know, if you're physically, you know, somebody does something physical to you, your body heals from that over Mm -hmm. time in most cases. Uh, But mentally, you know, that's a much harder thing to deal with because the way that our brains work and the way PTSD works, I mean, it's not something that you just get over or you're heals on its own you know
3: let's say you get in a car crash and break your arm and your arm heals and it's fine Mm -hmm. but that fear and that memory of getting in the car crash and breaking your arm is still there yeah so yeah i would agree with that
1: and there's a lot of proof nowadays that ptsd and trauma can hide within your body and manifest as physical oh yeah pain or symptoms you can get ill um so yeah
3: mind and body work hand in hand
1: that's right so not having therapy definitely made it super difficult for steven to move on and to heal he didn't get the chance to properly process the last seven years of his life there was no therapist helping guide him through probably all of the thoughts he was having everything he was trying to process it's a complex healing journey and he was on it on his own not only that his family was not equipped to go through these changes either It was hard for them to fully accept that their son wasn't a seven-year-old boy that they knew him as. He had come back as a teenager with his own issues and needs. That change was especially hard on Dell, His little Stevie, who had been his little buddy, his little shadow all these years, was now a teenager who had been through a lot. The family also had to wrestle with the fact that Steven's adjustment would take a lot of work. When he was living with Kenneth, He had a lot of freedom to do whatever he wanted, so he wasn't used to that typical family structure. Plus, it was hard to get his attention sometimes. Stephen had spent the last seven years being called Dennis every day. It would take a long time for him to fully recognize himself as Stephen again. The media was constantly hounding their family. They wanted to squeeze as much as they could out of this story. It was a little too overwhelming for Stephen, and he was already struggling with adjusting to begin with, but having you know, media in his face, cameras in his face.
0: Media never makes it better. No, nope. Making it everybody else's entertainment and a spectacle for everybody to watch is, Mm -hmm. you know, just prolongs the healing process or makes everything worse.
1: He felt all this pressure to tell his story to the world on TV. And he did multiple news interviews where he talked about his time in captivity
3: and I feel like that's just putting him in, like, a hero spot. So even yeah. more so, like, you can't actually face the issues that you have right. internally mm-hmm. because you already, like, have to be strong for the yeah. fucking interviews. It's so yeah. stupid. I mean, I get it. I get why survivors come mm-hmm. out and go on. And I'm not saying everyone who does that is stupid, but I just think it's so almost backwards. Yeah. And not productive. Yeah. And I'm sure, I mean,
1: I think every victim has a different take of if they want to sure. share or if they want to be more private. But... Mm-hmm it's the media that's really driving that pressure.
3: Yeah.
0: Well, especially when the media's like got an angle on the story exactly, or the yeah. case and they're trying to, you know, push for like in this case they were really pushing for him to talk about like the nitty gritty specifics mm-hmm. of his abuse mm-hmm. and like they want the juicy, you know, they always want mm-hmm. the juiciest details detail. so that they can then turn into headlines and keep titles people glued to, to the story Right. So that's, keep I mean, selling them things. Right. It's all ultimately about ratings, about viewership, yep. about, you know, paper sold. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, yes. Um, I was walking home from school and I was stopped by a man along the street, just a few blocks from my house. And he uh, asked me if I wanted to, me or my my mother wanted to donate something to a church. And I had told him that uh, my mother would probably want to. And so he offered me uh, a ride home. I had um, refused the first time telling him that uh, my house is just a few blocks away. And he had asked me several more times and after a while I had taken a ride and then uh, a car pulled up and I got in and they they passed the road that I was that I lived on and I had told them that that was the road I lived on they said that We'll just uh, call your parents, see if you can stay the night. Were you afraid? Uh, not that much. I was a little bit. What What did they tell you as the days went on? Why Why they were keeping you with them? And what did they tell you about your family? Well, the f- first night they had said they called my parents and said it was all right that I stay the night. The second night, they said that they had called him again and said they, that I could stay another night. Then um, one of them went to uh, went out and came back and said that he went to court and got in possession of me and said that I was his. How did you feel about that when you heard that? Um, I have really forgotten what I felt at that time. It was kind of a shock to me. You called him, I'm, I've been told that you called him dad. How long before you started calling him dad? Do you have any idea when that started? Um, that started about a week after my abduction. What were your thoughts during the seven years about your parents? Did you think about them? And if so, what, what went through your mind? Um, through the seven years, I don't remember what went through my mind, but I thought of my parents very often.
1: God, seeing the pain behind his eyes is just heartbreaking.
0: And these damn interviewers, man. I know. They're and so they're just cold. Like, like, seriously, do you even know what this, this poor boy went through? Like, And you're over here like, how soon until you called him dad? Yeah. It's like.
1: So obnoxious. Oh, God. And actually, Stephen's siblings kind of got jealous of all the attention that Stephen was getting. He got new clothes for his media interviews and was getting all this media attention. And Carrie, in particular, was jealous of all the attention that his brother had gotten. He felt like he was neglected or forgotten ever since Stephen came back. Later on, Kay said that she regretted giving the media so much access to Stephen's life. At first, Stephen told the police and the press that Kenneth never abused him in any way. He didn't want to talk about such a painful subject. But about a month later, the police called Stephen into the station. They had found nude photos that Kenneth had taken of Stephen as a child. Now the media started hounding the stainers about the abuse. They wanted to know all the nitty-gritty details of how that abuse took place. Stephen was constantly surrounded by reporters and cameras. They even followed him to school and videotaped him in class or as he walked through the halls. And many students seemed jealous of the attention that Stephen was getting. So he has to deal with that jealousy. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, he's like, why would you be jealous of me?
0: Yeah i mean sweet. kids are always jealous of yeah. those that get attention though
3: right yeah yeah no, i feel like you can't really blame the kids but no. like still it's sad for him to have to yeah. like, take on the brunt of
1: that just thinking of him in that position yeah. like, god can he go through any more now he comes home and he's having all of these issues his siblings are jealous of him all the friends are jealous of him then he ended up getting bullied for a long time um for being a victim of abuse they called him homophobic slurs and teased him constantly. And it got so bad that he ended up dropping out during his junior year.
0: And the fact that the media just doesn't care. I know. They don't care that they're they're causing all of this yeah. and, and not allowing him the liberty to just live a normal life again. Like, yeah. Isn't that what you should be trying to do is allow him to readjust mm-hmm. to normal life and not, you know, creating this spectacle everywhere you go?
1: Mm-mm. And it wasn't just the media that he had to deal with and all the attention. He still had to testify at Kenneth's trial.
0: So Kenneth had only been charged with the kidnappings of Stephen and Timmy. He'd been convicted of molesting an eight-year-old boy before the kidnappings, but he was never registered as a sex offender. If Kenneth had been registered, police would have been able to identify him as a potential suspect in the kidnappings. At the time, sexual assault and kidnapping both had three-year statutes of limitation, That meant that prosecutors couldn't charge Kenneth with any of the sexual assaults he committed before 1977. There were still almost 100 sexual assault charges that the prosecutors could have brought against Kenneth, but they decided that they didn't want to harm Stephen by making him testify about those assaults. Still, Stephen had to testify about the sexual abuse anyway during the kidnapping trial. Prosecutors actually had to fight to make the kidnapping charges related to Stephen stick. They had to argue that the kidnapping was an ongoing process so that it would fall within the three-year statute of limitations. Not only that, but they could only charge Kenneth with second-degree kidnapping. For first-degree kidnapping, there had to be either a ransom demand or bodily harm committed. At the time, California did not consider sexual assault to be bodily harm. Kenneth was never charged with sexual assault, even though there was plenty of evidence that he sexually abused Stephen and multiple other young boys. Kenneth Parnell was found guilty of both kidnappings, and he was sentenced to only seven years in prison for Timothy's kidnapping. According to California law, the kidnapping sentences had to be combined and they couldn't go over the maximum sentence. That meant that Kenneth was only sentenced to serve 20 months in prison for kidnapping Stephen. That's a total of only eight years and eight months for these heinous crimes. Kenneth Parnell only spent five years in jail and two years on parole after he got off parole he failed to tell authorities about his change of address he was required to do that since he was a sex offender but he was never prosecuted for the failure to notify the authorities
3: that's fucking bullshit
0: yeah he just got off every which way he could that meant that kenneth was free to keep abusing young boys he even spent two years working as a security guard at a boy's home what on earth convicted of kidnapping And he's allowed to work at a boy's home ridiculous it was hard for steven to cope with everything that had happened to him especially since he wasn't in therapy he started drinking and smoking a lot of weed he also started abusing pills and street drugs steven started getting in trouble at school a lot he acted out and brought around a stream of different girls he even wrecked a few cars and at one point dell even kicked steven out of the family home Stephen eventually started working at a butcher shop, and that's where he met a girl named Jody Edmondson. Stephen really wanted to settle down, so a lot of that wild behavior stopped.
1: So Timmy White and his family stayed close with the Stainer family, and he was able to have a normal childhood and was raised in a good, loving home. I mean, he was only gone for two weeks, so obviously this was traumatic, but he was able to recover. In 1985, Stephen and Jodi got married, and they had two children, Ashley Luella, and Stephen Jr. Stephen was a great father to his kids. Parenting came supernatural to him and made him so, so happy. By 1989, things were going pretty well for Stephen and his family. He got a job at a pizza parlor and settled down at a house in Merced, and he also rejoined the Mormon church. Stephen also started working with child abduction groups and the police to raise awareness and help stop child predators. Some of his work involved giving speeches to kids on protecting themselves and being aware of stranger danger. One day, Stephen got a call from the TV news network NBC. They wanted to make a miniseries based on his story, and Stephen agreed to help them out with the series. So they brought him and his family on set. Jody remembered that their time working on the miniseries was pretty happy. They were treated very well on set. Stephen also got to talk to the actor playing his teenage self, Corin Nimick. Stephen thought the kid looked just like he did when he was 14. The two-part miniseries was named I Know My First Name is Stephen, and it was released that year. Stephen made a cameo in the show as a police officer in his homecoming scene.
2: You say he looks just like you did at age 14? (laughs) Basically, yeah. Now 23, Steve is married with two
0: kids and looks forward to a career in law enforcement. During the filming of the miniseries, he even had an opportunity to portray a police officer. But acting aside, he says the painful ordeal he went through is something that he still struggles with.
2: Any chance I get to talk about it, I think really helps me deal with the the problem. The more I talk about it, the the better I can deal with it.
0: His mother, Kay, says she hopes by telling their story, other parents may be able to learn from their mistakes.
3: Because we didn't really talk that much with our kids about, um, dealing with awkward situations or bad situations. Uh, We told them don't talk to strangers, we never told them what a stranger was.
0: As for Steve, he's just hopeful that by focusing attention on his experience, the misfortune he suffered will somehow be able to make a positive difference for others.
2: We're hoping it'll reach uh, the people out there and inform them that stranger abduction, child abduction of any kind is a serious problem. Maybe some kid out there that's missing will, will see it and and come forward and uh, make an attempt to go home.
0: Stephen even said himself that talking about what he went through made him feel so much better and, yeah. and helped him deal with what he had gone through.
1: Yeah, so therapy would have been great.
0: Right, right. And then Stephen, I mean, he's 23 and that. He looks mm-hmm. so much older, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. I know, yeah. It's crazy what a mustache will do for you, huh? Makes yeah. you look a lot older. And Not not for it's me, true. though. I mean, I don't... Do I look older with the oh, mustache? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I guess facial hair on anybody makes you look
1: older. Huh? Yeah, pictures of you where you don't have your beard or mustache, true. you look
0: way younger. Very true. Yeah, I that.
1: Anyway, so in general, Stephen was pretty pleased with how the show turned out. And like he said in the interview, he had hoped a missing child in a similar situation might watch the show and come forward. Possibly it could help others. He also did some interviews to promote the series, but he wasn't completely happy with the way that he was portrayed. He said that his character seemed rude and obnoxious, and he wasn't like that as a kid. He also said that he had never talked back to his parents, as the show led people to believe. Kay and Dell didn't like any of the show. They didn't think it accurately showed what their family was like. Dell was especially mad about it. He thought the show made him look bad.
0: Which is often the case is with these I don't understand this this whole thing of like making a mini series like a well I understand making like a documentary series about it where you're letting the family tell their own story but these sensationalized mm-hmm. movies like Netflix did one on oh, the gypsy yeah, um, yeah. Uh, ca- I agree. case which was just bizarre mm-hmm. where the, where Rose they try furniture. to like yeah. cast other people as the mm-hmm. I as hate the family.
1: it really bothers me Unless, which I don't think almost ever happens but unless a family is involved with the process and and you know can right. really have a hands-on experience which yeah really doesn't happen but especially now stand yeah. the reenactment stuff i know it really it's... bothers me
0: but this miniseries was a hit it was nominated for four emmy awards but the night before the emmy something terrible happened on september 16th 1989 steven was killed in a hit and run accident He'd been driving home from work on his motorcycle when a driver pulled out in front of him. Stephen crashed into the driver's car and died from his head injuries at the scene. Unfortunately, Stephen's helmet had been stolen a few days before the accident, so he wasn't wearing one when he crashed. But witnesses were able to identify the hit and run driver who killed Stephen, and he was charged with felony hit and run, and he was sentenced to three months in jail. Timothy White was a pallbearer, actually, at Stephen's funeral. In 1989, author Mike Eccles published his book. I know my first name is Stephen. Mike had actually interviewed the Stainer family in his research, including Stephen.
1: So obviously, just a tragic ending to Stephen's yeah, life after, after all everything. Of that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. especially for someone to someone carelessly to have hit him like that and taken his life. I mean, it's just devastating.
0: Left behind his his wife and kids, and yeah. so young too.
1: Yeah, and listening to interviews with his daughter is just heartbreaking um, hearing how much she missed out on and how she does have memories of her dad, including even just hearing his heartbeat laying on his chest. And, you know, she only has a few memories of him, but cause I mean, he was just so young when his life ended. I mean, his kids really barely got to know him at all. It's just so tragic.
0: And from all accounts of his family and his, his wife, Jody. He was just the best dad he was yeah. just absolutely i mean he just mm-hmm. seems like a really really solid guy yeah great family man mm-hmm. loved his kids yeah i mean what he did for timmy just just showed so much about how selfless he was and yeah. you know how much he really cared about people so yeah really tragic that his life yeah. ended the way that it did
1: such a short tortured
0: life i mean it's just awful yeah and just when you think the stainer family's been through you know pretty much the worst thing that they could possibly experience Yeah, things only get dramatically worse with carrie and before we dive into carrie we're going to take one more break and we'll be right back so let's talk about carrie stainer and sort of the effects that steven's death on had on him when Stephen died it absolutely shattered carrie's world life had finally been getting back to normal when Stephen passed but things were only about to get worse. A year after Stephen died, his uncle Jerry was shot and killed by a home invader. At the time, Carrie was living with that uncle, and that case was never solved. Carrie later claimed that his uncle Jerry had sexually abused him while Stephen was missing, and this is completely speculation, and this is just something we found during our research, but there's some members of the family who have wondered if Carrie was the one who actually killed his uncle. But Carrie started to spiral out of control due to stress. He spent a lot of time at Yosemite and he started using hard drugs. In 1991, Carey attempted suicide and six years later he was arrested for possession of marijuana and methamphetamine and those charges ended up getting dropped. At one point, Carey had a psychotic breakdown and threatened to drive his truck into his workplace. He also said he was going to kill his boss and everyone inside. He ended up going to a mental hospital after that, but he quickly checked himself out. In 1997, Kerry started working as a handyman at the Cedar Lodge Motel near Yosemite National Park. The Yosemite area was always his go-to spot. He spent a lot of time smoking weed and swimming naked in the nearby river. Kerry didn't get along with everyone at the Cedar Lodge, and he creeped out a lot of people. The lodge had a restaurant attached to it that was run by a woman named Trisha. Trisha had a teenage daughter, and her daughter thought Carrie was also super creepy. Sometimes when she swam in the pool, Kerry would just stand there stare at her. It made her so uncomfortable that she told her mom and naturally Trisha warned Carrie to stay away from her daughter or else she'd destroy him. He continued to work at the Cedar Lodge until he was laid off the next winter.
1: On February 15th, 1999, three women went missing from Cedar Lodge. The missing women were Carol Sund, her 15-year-old daughter Julie, and Julie's 16-year-old friend, Sylvina Peloso. Silvina was a foreign exchange student from Argentina Carol and Julie had taken her on a trip to see the National Park. They were supposed to meet Carol's husband at the airport the next day, but they never showed up, and he reported the three women missing the next day. On March 19, 1999, their rental car was found in Yosemite. It had been torched. There were two bodies in the trunk of the vehicle. The bodies were so badly burnt that they needed to be identified using dental records. Unfortunately, those records confirmed that the victims were Carol's son and Sylvina Peloso. Six days later, the police got a chilling note in the mail. It was a hand-drawn map of Yosemite that marked the location of Julie's remains. There had also been a note written on top of that that said, we had fun with this one. So police went to that spot and they found Julie's body. The killer had slashed her throat. On July 22nd, 1999, someone discovered the body of 26-year-old Joey Armstrong near her cabin in Yosemite. Joey was a naturalist who worked for the Yosemite Institute. She had been killed and beheaded the day before.
0: I believe her body was found in the creek behind her, Mm -hmm. her house.
1: The police began looking at Carrie as a suspect after the witness reported seeing his car near Joey's cabin. And they ended up arresting him at a nudist colony for the murder.
0: I've never even seen the man violent at all. He's never even really raised his voice, even when
2: we're just sitting there talking. He always made us feel... Pretty much like we had nothing to worry about. Never made us feel uncomfortable. Pretty disappointing because this was my, you know, my little paradise away from the city.
1: So Kerry ended up confessing to killing all four women. He told the FBI that he had committed the first murders by knocking on the women's door and pretending he needed to do some routine maintenance. After they let him in, he pulled out a pistol and told them he was robbing them. He bound them and duct tape each of their mouths. Then he led two girls into the bathroom and strangled Carol. After killing Carol, he strangled Sylvina, sexually assaulted Julie, and then killed her as well. Carrie told the FBI that he had met Joey outside of her cabin in Yosemite. He had driven up to the park to check out a site where he had claimed he had seen Bigfoot before, and that's where he saw Joey outside of her cabin. Carrie had an obsession with Bigfoot, and he struck up a conversation with Joey about it. He said he couldn't resist killing her after he found out that she was alone. Since Joey's murder happened at a national park, Carey was tried in federal court. He was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. And for the murders of Julie, Carol, and Sylvina, Carey was tried in state court, and he was found guilty and later sentenced to death in 2002.
0: Today, Carrie Stainer is still on death row at San Quentin Penitentiary in California, In 1999, the city of Merced wanted to rename some local parks in honor of its notable citizens. Stephen's family wanted to have a park renamed Stainer Park in honor of Stephen. It had been 10 years since he passed away. But the city decided to pick another resident to name the park after, as they didn't want the name Stainer Park to be associated with Carrie and his crimes. Well, by this time, Kenneth Parnell was 71 and he was in pretty poor health. He had diabetes, emphysema, and he had recently had a stroke but he still tried to commit more sick crimes. In January 2003, he tried paying his caregiver, Diane Stevens, $500 to kidnap a four-year-old boy for him. She knew about Kenneth's past crimes, so she immediately called the police, and Kenneth was arrested for attempted child molestation. Timothy testified against Kenneth at trial, and even though Steven had passed away, prosecutors were able to read his old testimony in court. At the trial, Timmy hugged Randall Poorman and forgave him for his part in the kidnapping ultimately kenneth was found guilty under california's three strikes law he was sentenced to 25 years to life in a california state prison on january 21st 2008 kenneth parnell died of natural causes as for the rest of the stainer family jody stainer eventually got remarried her new husband didn't like the kids talking about Stephen, though and he put a lot of distance between the kids and the rest of the stainer family so Stephen jr and ashley grew up not knowing a lot about their father Their memories of him were already pretty faint, but they just didn't talk about him for a while. Ashley Stainer was only three when her father passed, and she and her brother hold on to his memory the best they can. Ashley is also actually a big fan of true crime. Eventually, Timothy White became a deputy with the L.A. County Sheriff's Office. He got married and had two children, and he was able to grow up and live a pretty normal life after the kidnapping, thanks to Stephen. On April 1, 2010, though, Timothy White died of a pulmonary embolism, he was 35 years old. That year Yukai residents raised money to have a tribute to Timmy and Stephen created. A local artist carved a statue that shows Stephen and Timmy holding hands as they escaped their kidnapper. It's, I love that they did that. Yeah, isn't that cool? Yeah. I'm glad there's something out there to remember both of them. Mm-hmm. The statue was dedicated in Applegate Park in Merced. It's a symbol of hope for families of missing children. Unfortunately, though, the plaque on the memorial was stolen recently. As for Stephen's parents, Kay and Dell. Kay is still alive and well, but Stephen's father, Dell, died on April nine, two thousand thirteen, at the age of seventy nine. Man, what yeah. just what a crazy, I mean, crazy story. And I just know experience that the Stainer family had to go through.
1: Yeah, and what was also really horrible about all of this is Stephen's kids having the name Stainer had to deal with kind of harassment from people and questioning from media because. They had the same last name as Carrie, which they didn't even really know their uncle at all,
0: right? But, but. just because Carrie is a, mm-hmm. a stainer, that yeah, his story yeah. now completely mm-hmm. overshadows this heroic story, yeah, uh, of Stevens, yeah, and has forever just tainted his memory in the public's eye at the very yeah. You know, the fact the that he's
1: even connected to it, yeah,
0: yeah, and, and and there's a lot of sort of not controversy, but just there's a lot of questions about you know, why Carrie did what he did. Because from all accounts, from mm-hmm. his family, friends, random people that knew him, is that this is just, these these killings are just so out of character for him. Uh, I mean, it's as, as just, when you, you know, you meet him, you, would, right. you wouldn't expect him to be capable of doing this. But at the same
1: time, they seem to be in character, considering how young he was having those thoughts. and
0: Yeah, well, know, in hindsight, before, yeah, looking back. Brother, yeah. Right, right. But also just, you know, like some people say that, well, maybe the reason that he did this was because he wanted, he was jealous of the of Stephen and all of the attention that Stephen got that he wanted people to care about him and they wanted, uh, he wanted a movie about his story mm-hmm. and his story being, you know, a serial killer and... You I know, guess. maybe that's why he did what it, what he did. But. I
1: doubt it. I doubt that's the reason, personally. Yeah, I mean, I can see how people can make that argument, but
0: but I think when you really, yeah, when you really dive into his past and you look at who he was growing up, he's always been this very. I mean, you look at profiles for serial killers, and you mm-hmm. look at his past and just his behavior and mm-hmm. being isolated and having those thoughts. Mm-hmm. That it, it's not totally surprising that no. he he did what he did, but yeah, it's one of those things. I mean, you just you never there's it's hard to put an understanding to why people do the things that they do especially serial killers it's hard to understand why they do what they do yeah
1: and again i mean it's hard to judge you can't say completely but it's frustrating that these kids never got any type of therapy or were able to work through this i mean he was having these violent thoughts from such a young age and that was never really explored or dealt with it was kind of just Brushed under the rug, and I mean, as far as we know, their family has been very hush hush. Yeah, about I mean, Kate doesn't talk about Carrie no, at all, not at all.
0: And no. there was a mitigation specialist in Carrie's trial who said that during that trial there was a lot of past family trauma that was mm-hmm. unpacked and that wasn't ever talked about publicly. I bet I was that just came to say up. That. They he mm-hmm. specifically said there's alcoholism that. Yeah is in there there's abuse in there mm-hmm, um that would make that a lot of out. sense so there's yeah you know with most families there's always more you know beneath the surface than mm-hmm. than what you could possibly know looking you know from the outside in but mm-hmm. again i mean at the end of the day it's just it's I, I feel really bad for for kay stainer because she has lost two children now mm-hmm. she lost steven in different ways too and, such different ways yeah to-
1: like not even in the same realm to cope with those two situations. It's just horrible.
0: And the Stainer name is forever associated with mm-hmm. with Carrie, you know.
1: Yeah, but it's also forever associated with Stephen, who's looked at as a hero for many people and many victims out there.
0: Yeah, I mean, what he did was truly heroic. Honestly, I mean, it was. to to protect Timmy from from mm-hmm. the abuse that was certainly going to happen at some point and yeah. escape and. Strong guy. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's truly an incredible story uh, of just the the human spirit and just mm-hmm. being able to go through something as traumatic as he went through and come out the other side and and mm-hmm. and seemingly. Go On and live a normal life and well, and have, yeah, normal well, I, to some I, extent, right? But
1: like normal on the outside, yeah, right. I'm not obviously
0: right. he had lots of things, I'm just clarify, but go on and live and have, have a family, and, yeah, and see, totally. And when he died, he was seemed like he was at a really good place in his life,
1: mm-hmm. uh, seemed that way, seemed that way, right? Yeah,
0: so and then to have Carrie just go off the rails, yeah, I and know and the what story just
1: ends badly, like in every way, though. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, Timmy died at yeah, thirty-five. I, mean, I know it's I mean, just
0: crazy all everybody associated pretty much died yeah
1: it's a pretty upsetting one but definitely intriguing we want to know your guys's thoughts yeah let us know what you thought this of this whole of, thing of
0: this case i just can't believe that kenneth parnell only got seven years for all that like, That's what
1: the biggest tragedy here for real and
0: then he did literally it's go disgusting. out there and do it again
3: went and got a job at a boy's house or yeah. a who knows
0: how many other boys he went and abused after oh after that probably many I mean, he's clear. He's clearly has major issues, but yeah. I guess it's good he's not around anymore. But with that being said, we're going to go ahead and wrap up today's episode there. Again, let us know in the comments what you think of of Stephen's story, of Carrie's story. And we will see you guys next week. Make sure you're subscribed on YouTube, following us on Spotify. It does really help us out. Subscribed on Apple Podcasts too. We really appreciate it. But until next time, Keep oh, taking. we
1: have a really interesting episode next oh, week we? too. Yeah, oh. Oh, we an do. interview.
0: Oh, yeah, I'm very excited for that. Yeah, we've got a we've got a couple guests coming up here too, which is mm-hmm. which is good stuff. So yeah, look yeah. forward to that. Cool. We'll see you guys next week. But until then, keep taking your mind a mile, mile higher. higher.